How to create a glitch. History and the law. In this episode, I'll be touching on a few topics, but I'll also be introducing an entirely new topic, which will be the subject matter of season 2 of how to create a glitch in the matrix. Now, for the most part, up until now, we've talked a lot about how the system is organized, how it manifests, how to create glitches in reality. We've talked about narratives and tension and a number of other ideas. But with this podcast, I'd like to use as a kind of transition between this season and the next season of how to create a glitch in the matrix. And the way that I'll do that is by discussing the nature of reality and the programming of reality from a macrocosmic perspective. Up until now, we've been discussing the microcosmic operation of reality, the rules which govern it and how it manifests. But with this podcast, I'd like to talk about the larger picture. Now, the first thing I'll have to say is that the same principles which underlie the microcosmic aspects of reality, so narrative, tension, the four principles, substitution and displacement, polarity union and conservation. All of those ideas, which apply to the microcosmic world, also apply to the macrocosmic world. But you have to look at him from with a wider lens to understand how they impact sociality. Now, early on in the podcast, I discussed how a simple choice, such as refusing to take off one's jacket in a hot and humid room, can alter the bounds of sociality and undermine the ordinary expression of meaning. So, what are essentially non conformist or in some ways, antisocial behaviors can undermine the ordinary operation of a social exchange and expose the unusual beneath it. That being said, you could also look at the question of whether or not to say take off your jacket in a hot and humid room filled with other individuals also having taken their jackets off from the standpoint of trends. And this idea is that when social circumstances create patterns of behavior, it manifests as a trend and it's more accessible to discuss this manifestation is a trend for the purposes of the microcosmic view of things. So, if we look at trends on a larger scale, we can say that we know that trends historically will replicate or eternally recur. We know that over the course of many years in a society, historical trends tend to reoccur periodically. The question is whether or not that is directed or undirected process, and I would submit that it is a directed process, a manifestation of the programming of this reality. And the way that I'll explain it is that trends, media, movies, film, theatre, All the various manifestations of art reflect the times in which they originally were generated. So, for example, if you look at society right now or even on a microcosmic perspective, if you look at the way an individual dresses in, say, the year 2021, that manner by which they dress on any particular day is going to be a reflection of a style which was prevalent during a certain era. And the impact of replicating a style which belongs to a particular era in the past is a recapitulation of the social circumstances of that earlier manifestation of the style. So effectively, what I'm saying is individuals are calibrated by anchored emotional memories, which are embedded in the unified mind of the consensus reality. So basically, when an individual makes a choice to replicate a trend or style or an artistic subject, They are making a conscious decision to calibrate their mind and the reality which they inhabit to a particular day, in a particular time or in a particular location. So, let's say an individual decides in 2021 to start a trend of wearing bell-bottom jeans. That trend, if it catches on, 
will calibrate the population to a particular era in the history of Western civilization or even Eastern civilization, any civilization which manifested that style at a historical period. So, if you create that trend, let's say the last time it was prevalent was the 1970s. The 1970s were an era of high inflation of issues with oil, of wars in certain areas of economic stagnation, etc., etc. So, you're linking the trends of history to a particular style which then becomes a trend which then manifests the anchored factual events of the last time that that style was prevalent. You could also say that this anchoring is simply a reflection of the manifestation of a particular era mirroring an earlier era. And I won't say that that's not the case, but what I am saying is that for the purposes of my thesis and the thesis of this podcast, it only makes sense to look at it as a directed process and as a directed process. It makes sense that the incidental choices that we make with our style, with our media choices, our consumption choices are all ultimately drawing us back to a time in the past and recapitulating those ideological conflicts of that era in the present moment. So, in other words, on a macrocosmic scale, society is directed by calibration, and it's directed by calibration, using trends in the arts and in media. And so, ultimately, the pattern, which is revealed by this is one of eternal recurrence. And ultimately, it's a pattern which can be undermined by resisting historical trends or the manifestation of trends in society through the various methods described in these podcasts. So, on a macrocosmic scale, resisting trends or recapitulating trends which counter the trends of the present is the most effective way from that standpoint to assist in creating a glitch in the matrix. Now again, I'll summarize the points that I've made in this podcast for the reader or for the listener. Essentially, the way that the microcosmic system works is individuals are calibrated by artistic trends in fashion, media, music and film or theater. Individuals replicate styles of status figures, and those styles are ultimately calibrated by a particular emotional era or era in history corresponding to certain ideological struggles or economic circumstances or historical behavior. So, these patterns ultimately recur through the calibration of styles and media in the public theater. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about how emotional calibration, as introduced in the last episode of the first season of Monologues, how emotional calibration works and what the purpose of it is. So, to start out, I'd like to indicate that there's two ways of looking at the process of emotional calibration and the use of trends in style and media consumption choices to calibrate the population to a particular period in history where there were specific ideological struggles and the recapitulation of those ideological and historical trends in the more recent era. So, the first way to look at it is from a passive standpoint. And as I indicated in the last episode of season one of the monologues, I do not believe that the calibration of the population is a passive process. I believe it's directed as such, since I believe it's directed, I believe that it is directed for a purpose. So that's the first kind of point I'd like to get across the emotional calibration of the population is a directed process, and it's directed for a specific purpose. So, what is that purpose? The purpose of reintroducing certain ideological conflicts in the population periodically through the emotional calibration of styles and media choices and consumption choices is for the purposes of eliminating underlying currents of social tension. So, in other words, basically, 
What I'm suggesting is periodically the system builds up a certain amount of entropy, and this entropy manifests as social tension within the context of social exchanges or socialization. So there has to be a way to eliminate this social tension, this entropy within the system. So, in order to do that, the programming of the system is designed to reintroduce certain ideological conflicts periodically and direct that social tension or entropy into that ideological conflict, that ideological conflict. Then over time, and by the mechanism of social dialogue is gradually eliminated and the social tension dissipates. Now, one of the key steps for this process to work is that the sources of entropy, those who are causing issues in the system, those who are building up entropy in the system, those who are creating social tension, they have to be redirected and they have to be redirected carefully towards one of two positions in an ideological conflict. The central ideological conflicts of a given era thus manifest as the gradual attribution to those causing social tension or entropy in the system, and therefore the release of that tension during a subsequent period of resolution in the narrative. So, the key point on an individual level or the key step in order to make this whole process work is that individuals have to be rationalized according to a specific categorical categorization which exists in the populace already, which is to say that ideological conflicts can only be recapitulated if individuals are properly categorized into the two classifications or more which describe the ideological conflict. What this means in practice is that individuals will find that if they create entropy in the system, they're going to be socialized to describe that entropy or that tension that they create into set categories which have been set aside for them, as set out in the emotionally calibrated ideological struggle identified and implemented through the emotional calibration of media and fashion. Now it's also important to note on another line of thinking that oftentimes these stylistic changes or recapitulation are unconscious. That is, Individuals will gravitate toward specific styles or consumption choices based upon the underlying programming of the system, oftentimes without their knowledge or express understanding that they're being directed towards it and the principle by which this occurs is through their posture. Postural releases and as explained in the previous season, postural release is what they do is they involve the consent or acquiescence of one individual to another and the mirroring of their behavior posture and posing. This mirroring behavior created by postural releases eliminates tension. And so, when an individual mirrors another individual, oftentimes that will also include mirroring their styles and fashion and media consumption choices. So, in the process of giving in or consenting and thereby eliminating social tension, they're also acquiring an unconscious desire to mirror the other person's style choices or consent media consumption choices. So, this emotional calibration is built into the system as far as social tension is concerned and the essential nature of reality. Now the question becomes how does one work against this process? Well, in the same way that one can create a glitch by artificially eliminating postural releases. One can also be mindful of one's stylistic choices and consumption choices, and when one is is directed unconsciously to follow certain patterns as it pertains to style and media or consumption choices, one can willfully choose to reject those impulses and act in accordance with a particular era in history that one seeks to recapitulate. So, for example, let's say one seeks to recapitulate a specific style in the past 30 years for the purposes of identifying certain ideological struggles and bringing those out in society, 
one can choose to direct one's consumption choices into that pattern, with the aim of hopefully creating a trend among one's immediate the social and social circle and family members. So, the imposition of certain techniques in the context of these discussions is helpful in hopefully creating a glitch in the matrix and working against the programming of the system for the purposes of undermining the natural progression of an orderly, orderly exchange. In this episode I'll be discussing a few distinct ideas and drawing them together into a framework to understand how history has changed. First of all, to reintroduce a previously discussed concept called emotional calibration, the system is macrocosmically programmed by trends to recapitulate eras in the past. If you want to understand this concept please listen to my earlier podcasts on the subject. Now, there are some practical shortcomings of using the emotional memories of the eldest generation as an anchor for the social behavior of the masses in the present. The first drawback, is that biologically we are now dying at the age of 80. Whereas, at the beginning of the last century it was probably closer to half that. By consequence of this fact, biologically a parent may be alive and kicking with four generations of offspring alive. In the past there was a generational gap, created by the death of the first generation such that they could not oversee four generations or more of their descendants. The second major drawback is that worldwide migration has undermined the uniformity of historical experience amongst the older generations. This is to say that what would calibrate one person according to their ancestral memory might have no impact on another. Now, we know that experience is in a way a projection of our impulses, our expectations, our confidence wages, and nothing more. We know that reality is responsive to our entreaties, but we also know that there are now four generations of people living that are the biological offspring of a single living generation, which by and large, has not yet ceded control politically. In the past, the generational gap acted to eliminate the continuity created by historical precedent, but now there is no such blind spot in history and the boomers can just keep cycling us through the same eras and trends again and again. In fact, by the time the boomers have passed into history, the millennials will be ready to jump into place, recapitulating the past 40 years or so for another few decades. Now, thinking in terms of expectations and projections, a mother and father may have expectations about what their child will be like, or become. They may even have plans worked out, even if only unconsciously. But they would rarely if ever foresee four generations into the future. Thus, the projection of our expectations still carries with it a blind spot, but of a different kind. It is not a blind spot created by missing time. It is a blind spot created by having too much time. But what if the longevity of our era is not the result of some miracle of diet and advanced medicine? What if it is instead the manifestation of a change in the movement of time itself? If you recall in my last podcast I discussed how time flows at different rates depending upon how narrow the filter is with which we view reality. Now, I am asking for you to accept another proposition. What if science, being the filter of our era, is becoming narrower and narrower with each passing day? What if we live longer not because we are healthier, but because our lives are stretched like an elastic band, going over the same territory in circles each time? What if it's time that changed, not humanity? In this episode, I'll be talking about the basic concept of the other and what it teaches us about history, society and people. 
most people define themselves in any closed social system through likeness and oppositeness. As a consequence of this, and the concept of appropriation, individuals are inadvertently othered by these rationalizations. For example, if you consistently think of someone as different, this others them in the sense that it excludes them from your in-group and expels them to some out-group. The othering of individuals in a closed social system leads to the opening of that system and the expulsion of the othered out of the in-group. There are side effects of this. First of all, someone who is othered begins to identify with the out-group. This means they will adopt language, appearance, thought processes and other signifying, voluntary qualities of the out-group. On a society-wide basis, history creates othering as well by perpetuating groups which arise out of superficial characteristics or institutionalized groups created by historical precedent. These groups recapitulate the othering each time they are implicated through tradition or convention. The othering of individuals need not follow these lines, but escaping the othering of history is harder than it might appear. Historical stereotypes perpetuate these outgroups and ensure to continuity of their othering. Now, history is not the only source of othering and outgroups. Even modern trends or media such as say, Survivor or reality TV such as Big Brother, can perpetuate a systemization of othering behavior. But the main problem is thinking in terms of sameness and difference. For so long as this thought process is used to identify it will produce othering and splintering of groups to in-groups and out-groups. Even if society were to refashion itself by letting go of such thought processes, the historical precedents would recapitulate such differences irrevocably cycling history according to in-groups and out-groups. Although the modern idea of inclusion is important to the extent that it alleviates this to some degree, Escaping the othering of individuals by media and history is a tall order. But society would go a long way towards this aim by jettisoning reality TV fluff based upon othering and expulsion. Nevertheless, othering is a consequence of modern life, identity, and social dynamics. The divorce rate tells a story. It is a story of othering within families, children identifying with one parent and alienating another. At its most basic broken families tell us that it's difficult to engineer human thought. In any event, on a cultural basis, it is easy to see how revankist ideologues recapitulate othering and historical outgroups. But it is equally easy to see why for example individuals who are othered may adopt beliefs and affinities for the enemies of freedom or democracy. Because their expulsion by the paradigms of progressivism are causal. Likewise, the reality that our education system no longer properly teaches history owes much to the belief that only ignorance of historical precedent can save us from the outgroups of history. In effect, liberalism, in seeking to escape othering, asks us to be ignorant of history and to promote inclusiveness is the highest goal. While revankist ideology realizes that true freedom from the cycles of history is impossible in a dualistic world, engineered by the human tendency to hate. In this episode, we will be discussing the importance and dichotomy of the white hat versus red hat archetype in narrative and self-identification, along with othering. Dualism is the default primordial unit class of the population. The vast majority of people and social participants think in terms of good guys and bad guys. This simplistic worldview has a profound impact on self-attribution and narrative. 
For everyone who models the world in this way, there are in groups and out groups which comprise those they mirror and those they act dialectically to. Dualism causes othering within societies and expulsion. For example, in the political arena, if we look at the conflict during the Cold War, it is instructive. At that time, all states were classified into those which were communist or sympathetic to the communists or capitalist, and those which were sympathetic to the capitalist states. Individuals within states were likewise ostracized if they demonstrated sympathies which ran counter to their in-group. For example, McCarthyism is a good example of the othering which coincided with this dualistic worldview. Now, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the world was no longer so divided. In-groups became fragmented, but the world remained nevertheless dualistic. Now, This othering process continues within the political sphere according to the prevailing narrative of your in-group. For a time, radical Islamists held the title of dualistic antagonist. Now, Russia again appears to be at odds with the world. During some periods, it has been Chinese communism which we were to fear. The point is these in-groups and out-groups are all artificial, the property of a dualistic worldview. For anyone who thinks in terms of good guys, there is a bad guy. Now, even within states this othering facilitates the misattribution of negative personality traits to those who seem different or other. The purpose of this othering is to affect the worldview and supremacy of the in-group. Even within our court system, the red hat versus white hat dichotomy shapes much of the narrative. When two individuals are dialectical in position the effect of this dialectical positioning is the othering of one participant and his or her expulsion from the in-group. Othering continues socially as well, with the malcontent or misanthrope becoming attributed as having violent intent. The social significance of this expulsion from the in-group manifests is the othered identifying with the contrasting ideology and becoming who they are always seen to be. Dualism is the guarantor of a zero-sum worldview, a worldview in which someone wins and someone loses, but the reality is that only in certain areas of life does this reflect the reality. Specifically, there is no reason for a zero-sum approach to the field of identity. Whether one individual subscribes to one worldview or another ultimately impacts no one except to the extent that they try and impose it on others. But, that being said, A zero-sum dispute over land ownership such as caused World War I and the conflict in Ukraine, can be nothing but zero-sum. Thus, dualism has some role to play in human events even if we do not wish it to. All of this aside, dualism is also inherent to a non-consensual force-based reality. Within the realm of social actors, physical territoriality, the masculine and feminine, necessarily generate a dualistic view. But even in the consensual does dualism play a role in the division of an individual into spheres of negation and self-attribution. So what is the solution to dualism? The construction of a web of associations out of a primordial unit class greater than two, would create a systemization which relies upon higher principles such as social geometry instead of othering. For example, in a Trinitarian worldview, we see three units, with a variety of arrangements. Within a group of four, we see a tetrahedral or trigonal possibility, etc. These arrangements generate the possibility of equidistant mirroring and optimization of a particular geometric space. And in so doing, 
we see the potentiality for freedom from in-groups and our groups. In any event, the goal of any participant should be to see things in a way that doesn't reduce dialogue and intersection to a zero-sum affair. Beyond dualism is indeed beyond good and evil. In this episode, the discussion will focus on the distinct scales or reference points by which our activity attains uniformity, and the outward-inward direction of causality is established. There are four dimensions to our identity in the world, which produce four scales of activity which produce uniformity. These are the components of the interface. These four are one's theory of reality, law, conventionality, context, and reactive emotionality, the nine plates. These are the four reference scales of our behavior which produce uniformity for others. How does this work? Our reactive emotionality, our responses to physical stimuli, produce in us an entangling of our subjectivity in objectivity, and promote our outward-inward direction of causality. Conventionality and our compliance with it, context so to speak, which is the next level, to the extent our behavior can be understood contextually, also creates an outward-inward direction of causality. Next, the law, and our compliance with it, produces in us patterns of behavior which are predictable. Finally, our theory of reality provides a schema for the prediction of others and ourselves. Thus, all of the above may produce in us orderly behavior, and make others' behavior comprehensible to us. Now, the entangling of our behavior in others occurs naturally as our internal thoughts pair preferentially with others' external postures. What this means is that others' body language can be seen to modify our internal stream of conscious experience. Why is this? Because the path of active concealment, the use of negation, resisting impulses by physical expression of inhibition, all displace tension onto other socially interacting individuals, which manifests as emotional tension in their bodies, deference. To put it simply, the tension in others manifests the extent to which they will preferentially take outs which dissolve the resonant nature of the consensual exchange. The occurrence of these outs will be followed by postural releases or deferent action which reflect the unconscious desires of the first individual, drawing them back into a consensual exchange. In previous podcasts, I talked about how there are two ways that an expectation field can interact, consonance and discordance. That was however in oversimplification. Namely, every such exchange can be of two forms, transactional or relational. Transactional exchanges are suppositional and involve one person, the object, meeting the expectation of the other, the subject. Relational exchanges are contingent and involve conjoining expectations, which is to say that the two individuals meet each other's expectations at the same time. Relational are consonant and transactional are discordant, because only one individual attains their prediction. In this episode we'll be discussing a new topic, namely the significance of the law to creating glitches. To start off, it is quite apparent that actions that violate some tenet of the law can be nonconformist even revolutionary. Be that as it may, although action which violates some tenet of the law of the land may assist one in creating patterns and breaking them breaking the law is not a necessary part of creating a glitch. More importantly, there are whole swaths of actions which although nonconformist, even antisocial, assist in creating glitches, while still being within the gamut of what is legal. Nevertheless, 
It is true to say that to some degree action unhindered by the law facilitates methods of creating a glitch. Which raises the question, what is the law in the context of this theory of glitching? What does the law teach us about the system? First of all, there are many kinds of law. There is natural law, which I would describe as reducing the flow of nature to an imperative drive. And there are man-made laws. There are laws spoken by a king and laws told by a strict mother. There are laws of gravitation and laws of thermodynamics. So, what is law? Law is prescriptive. Law is mandatory. Law is either violate or inviolate. Law presupposes two opposing dialectical opposites. A violation of the law negates the subject of the law. Man-made law is backed by force or violence, which negates the privilege of some freedom. Law is the agency of action of some pinnacle of the archetypal tree. It is the order of the group, administered by the one, in autocracy, or many, in democracy. So what is law? Law filters people just as the mind filters experience. Law is merely the elevation of one individual's choices amidst the whole. Violation of the law meets negation by the state. Conformity with the law meets affirmation by the state. This is an important distinction. You'll notice how I used the term, the state. Because it is possible to subsist in a state of relative affirmation while on the wrong side of the law, just as it is possible to subsist in a state of relative negation on the right side of the law. In other words, the state is not the arbiter of one's path to enlightenment. Now, I explained how the state uses deference to enforce the law. The subject matter of our interactions is sharped by how we fit together. But it can be said that anything we do unconsciously that benefits someone else, that is deference. Since we know that deference causes small changes in the way we do everyday things, since we know that postural releases are deferent actions, we can say that deference is negation. Recognition of another's social status is part and parcel of postural releases and deference, which tells us that the tonic holds deference over the dominant, and that the tonic's decisions are elevated in the group to the status of law. So what is law? Law is emulation. Law is mirroring. Whenever someone is mirrored, that individual is a lawmaker. Let's take a step back for a second to natural law. Natural law is more closely aligned with the two paths of negation and affirmation. Namely, when natural law is violated, this is the path of negation. When it is followed, this is affirmation. If this recipe is correct, then we should be able to assert that deference would result from breaches of natural law. In conclusion, Law is mirroring. Violation of the law, merely negation. This, we can understand deference is merely a unitary dimension of negation of self. In this episode 1 we'll be discussing vaccine mandates and contextualizing contemporary changes in the law. To start off, we saw in a previous episode that for the most part we exist in a reality which is consensual. This means that our experience even in a group, is shaped by our self-knowledge of our identity and our consent to the exchange. In reality however, this consensual nature of the exchange is an artifact of a particular worldview, an ideological edifice which rests upon individuals having certain inalienable rights. The interface of the law, upon which we interact with this reality, is the product of a hierarchical system, the result of archetypes given preferential capacities to enact standards of behavior. More importantly, 
as set out in a previous podcast, the capacity to compel mirroring in others, is what produces unitary phenomenon, but it is in our postural releases that we grant our consent to the lawmaker, and the unidirectional power imbalance represented by the hierarchy. Effectively what I am saying is the law-driven interfaces are hierarchical by their very nature, which means that, the very organization of our social exchanges would have to be re-engineered to give precedence to our equality. However, the impact of this is the loss of of consent to the exchange. Only in eliminating consent is it possible to transition to a truly egalitarian system. This means that the system which results will be non-consensual. In other words, the transition from consensual reality to non-consensual reality is the only pathway towards true equality. But there are troubling consequences. First of all, a non-consensual reality is dualistic whereas a consensual reality can be unitary and relies upon the creation of two groups, a closed grouping and a outgrouping. Next, the non-consensual reality must be a closed social system, no migration. Also, the organization of the closed non-consensual reality is one of compulsion, one of no inhibition, one of no outs. The content and limits of experience are thus communally determined and imposed. So how do vaccine mandates play into the analysis? Currently government is contemplating coercive measures to compel vaccination. The justification behind this trend is provided by the assertion of abstract and often empirically questionable paradigms of sickness between individual citizens and their understanding of their bodies. These paradigms are put forward under the guise of medical governmental authority. What this tells us is that the edifice of inalienable rights which we took for granted, which enabled the consensual reality, may be crumbling before our very eyes. In effect, by trusting the paradigms of sickness, we are stepping into a non-consensual reality, one with the qualities set out above, namely, one in which there is no inhibition, where choosing not to act according to the common conception of the good represents a form of sickness. In effect, we have been conscripted to choose between equality and freedom, between the common good and freedom. In this episode we will be further elaborating the interface of the law in the context of other ideas. Law can arise from any closed social system. It can be the result of the family, clan, tribe, nation or religion. Law is significant as an interface of the system because it renders people predictable in the context of that system. In truth, there is very little distinction between the systemization which follows from one's theory of reality, whether it be religious or philosophical, and the systemization which follows from the nation-state. From the standpoint of this theory, the only true difference is that the enforcement of one needs no agency, that is, one's theory of reality needs no custodian. But even so, most legalistic systems require some authority to maintain themselves. It is only when the legalistic follows the natural that it requires minimal supervision. A theory of reality finds its fulmination in its ability to predict events without any active measure of enforcement. A legal system exists only due to its enforcement. In effect, what I'm saying is that the agents of the state or any legalistic system enforce uniformity of experience as surely as they enforce a power structure constructed upon certain archetypal roles. What I'm saying is, although one need not overthrow the state to overthrow uniformity, 
some measure of non-conformity is required to undermine the natural predictability of people in a social society. Now, be all that as it may, what I am saying is that it is one's theory of reality, which relies upon a narrow substrate of experience, which one must overturn if one is to see past the uniformity we take for granted. It is only in expecting the impossible that we can truly experience it. Now, it is also important to establish that the imposition of the law at least throughout history has required the medium of written language. Just as our judges issue their judgments through written endorsements, so too did Hammurabi devise his code in tablets of stone. The medium of the plate of the hands for the imposition of orders of law is significant because it exposes the specialization of this plate in the segregation and unification of a mosaic reality. Hence, the plate of the hands transcribes the orders of law, codifying them, rendering the population predictable to the extent of the projection of power of the state. But it can also be said that legalistic systems should follow the grain of natural order to the extent possible freeing them from the abuse of a custodian or police. In a way, from the above we can see that the plate of the hands possesses the potentiality of unification of the nine plates, by representing our ability to maneuver those self-same plates, as a blacksmith tempers and bends steel. Such speculation is not limited to discussions of legalistic systems. The plate of the hands also possesses specialization in its necessity in the fabrication of tools and technology. Writing, as the ultimate form of technology, is merely one of many esoteric technologies enabled by the plate of the hands and its manipulation. So we see that the esoteric objects of the higher plates rely just as surely on the plate of the hands as do the orders of a king or judge. As we indicated in a previous podcast, law is nothing more than mirroring, or rather the elevation of one individual's action to a standard to be mirrored. In this elevation, we see the consonance produced by many minds so acting in confluence, produces a uniformity of experience, by rendering them all predictable by degrees. That's the end of the podcast for today. If you enjoyed it, please like, comment and subscribe.